Well, as you can tell from the title, we've got a humdinger of an encouraging message today. <laughs> I, um, I don't know, a uh, little intro to it, I guess. It's been, um, this has been something on my heart that I feel like God has been saying to a number of the people that I'm having conversations with uh, and so forth, that it's just, I don't know, I hope it's a little bit timely for all of us, but... Um, we have a hard time with the idea of suffering and pain in 21st century America. It's not our favorite topic. We tend to try to avoid it and anesthetize it in any way possible. So the problem with that is, is that's not the Christian experience. That's not the reality we're actually called to. And so I wanted to observe that topic, um, suffering, uh, and taking up our cross and following Christ. I wanted to try to kind of dive into that. I will preface it by saying um, I am in no way, shape, or form quite qualified for this topic. There are many, many, many other men of God and Christian resources. Well, frankly, you can read the entire New Testament and it deals with the issue. But um, I've been working through a book called uh, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller um, as I was exploring this topic. And um, what he helped me understand was is that the problem of pain, which is also a title of a C.S. Lewis book that deals on this issue, um, is a fundamental philosophical issue that all cultures, all religions, all times and places and, and people groups have had to grapple with. Our human experience is riddled with pain and suffering, and we have to come to terms with that. How do we deal with that? Um, every religion, every philosophy offers a solution to it. And so I won't have time to develop any of the other solutions and, I, and positions. Tim Keller's book does a really good job of handling that, so feel free to explore those there. I'll try to deal with the Christian perspective on it in at least minutia today. So if we could turn our Bibles uh, to Matthew 10. And as you are probably well aware, as I'm up here, I hop all over scripture, but we'll stay hopefully mostly in Matthew. We'll go to Matthew 10 for a few verses, then Matthew 5. Then we'll um, eventually get to Philippians uh, and kind of go through a few sections in Philippians and then round us out at 2 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. <clears throat> brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, 
For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed for, uh, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me, follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The core verse that we'll analyze is the the one that is actually repeated multiple times in the Gospels. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Christ's call to the Christian is to follow him as Lord. He's Lord. We are followers of Christ. We're disciples. We are in his likeness. We are doing the things he does. And he not only did miracles, he not only opened blind eyes, he not only saved the world by washing it with his blood, he died, he suffered brutally, and he calls us to do the same. Both in the total sense of ending our time on earth, but also in the day-to-day, mundane, week-in, week-out challenges and struggles of our lives. In all the different, uh, there's actually two times in Matthew that I counted, there was two times in Luke, and there was once, maybe twice in Mark, but it's the synoptics that repeat this verse. So Christ was repeating it in each of the gospel accounts, it, it appeared, or at least the synoptic gospels, and that means that it was a probable theme that he had to repeat multiple times. Also, he's always doing it to the disciples that had no idea that he was actually going to, they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that he was actually going to suffer and die for uh, the Messiah was required to do that according to the Old Testament. So we had to repeat these things sometimes. Um, but in Luke's account, in Luke 9, he actually, the, Luke adds the word daily. And that's what I think I would rather focus on versus our ultimate um, uh, obedience potentially in witnessing Christ in the form of martyrdom or something. The daily dying of ourselves, the daily deaths, those are the ones that I would actually like to consider today. Um, Strife among your family members, strife in the workplace, um, getting offended or being offended, people doing things that are offensive rather, all are normal parts of the Christian life. And we teach pretty regularly and often on that idea and we consider it a character development. It's an aspect of how God matures us to suffer greater things. (laughs) If we can't suffer the sleight of hands between our brothers and sisters in Christ or the 
the little fleshly comment that a husband might say to his wife. Sorry, Tiffany's. <laughs> Sorry, the Tiffany's of the world. <laughs> your husband's, your husband's uh, doing those things, um, those insensitive comments, right? If we can't navigate those very minute sufferings, the greater sufferings that he actually is calling us to will be all the harder. So to die your deaths daily is preparation for suffering, is preparation for greater persecution, is preparation for greater inheritance of glory, which we'll see. That we do not suffer in a vacuum is a huge, huge understanding of the Christian view of suffering. Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11 Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good news, you're blessed when you're persecuted. Good news, you're blessed when you're maligned. Your reward in heaven is great. You do not suffer in a vacuum. There is something on the other side of that suffering. Verse 20. For I say that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Also, verses 38. Going to verse 38. Applying that verse. For you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." In verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's known as the lex talionis, if I'm saying Latin correctly, because I'm not great at that. It's the idea of justice is to be meted out per the measure of the crime. The, The punishment must meet the crime, right? It's not to exceed it. It's actually a principle of justice, but also mercy. Um, you got guys like, um, Lamech in Genesis who says, uh, if, uh, if, if uh, Cain was avenged for his wrongdoing, I'm going to get avenged 70, 70-fold, right? I'm going to, if somebody wrongs me just in this minor way, I'm going to kill him, right? That's not justice. That's an over, that's overexertion of force that does not, the punishment does not meet the crime. So lex talionis, or the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, instituted by God in his law, is a measurement of justice. You do not exceed the punishment does not exceed the crime. If it's an issue of private property or a thief stealing, 
He doesn't lose his hand. <laughs> he doesn't, you don't take, the way, oh, take away the ability for him to work and actually do right in giving a restitution back by cutting off his hand, maiming and crippling him, right? You don't kill him, certainly. Um, but in the issue of uh, 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 a life for a life, that's an issue of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Now, what Christ is saying is there's actually a higher principle. There's actually something deeper than that. A righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees who ordered their lives as best as they understood according to the law of Moses. Do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go two. Give to him who asks and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. What Christ is saying is there is a righteousness that actually puts to end the cycle of violence that evil begins. That is so huge. When we are called to suffer injustice, we're not just told to do it blindly or just, you know what, just be a doormat, just get pummeled. No, we're called to do it intentionally with real actions that actually cease the evil. When someone strikes you in the one side, it is terribly surprising if you would offer them the other. What it shows is that you were beaten and not crushed. You were um, persecuted and not destroyed. You actually shame the aggressor and bring dignity to the sufferer all in the same breath. You actually do not return kind for kind. You actually return good for evil. This is the higher principle of the kingdom of God. This is the standard that Christ, although he's agreeing with the lex talionis, that that's a righteous standard, there is a righteousness that surpasses it that he calls us to and he empowers us to. This is the way. These are principles of how we are to suffer how we act in the face of suffering. We bless those who persecute us. We pray for our enemies. We serve them. We love them, despite the evil that they've inflicted. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. So we see there's a promised blessing in suffering. We also see there is a way and conduct in the midst of suffering. But now we get to examine more promises and a greater image of Paul applying the sufferings of Christ and doing it as an example for the Philippians. In Philippians, Paul is actually in prison um, when he's writing this. And through the, through the uh, epistle, he's actually trying to comfort them and say, look, don't be offended that I'm in shackles. It's okay. This is all for the cause of the gospel. God is sovereign. It's okay. We've got this covered. Don't, uh, you've participated and partaken in my sufferings by giving me a gift and taking care of me and so forth. You're doing a great thing. God is totally pleased with you. But don't lose heart. Don't be shaken by the trials and the persecutions that I'm enduring. Um, this is all by design. And so he's giving them these comforts of looking at suffering and dealing with it and turning our attention to Christ and understanding our Christ-like participation in suffering and how God actually anoints and fills us with his spirit to do so. Chapter 1, verse 28. 
in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Chapter 3, verses 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, this is, this is a powerful verse. Everybody should memorize this verse. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is a fellowship that God and the believer share with Christ in the midst of suffering. There is a fellowship of suffering. There is a real, tangible, practical presence of God in the midst of a suffering uh, situation. You are not called to suffer in a vacuum. There are blessings on the other side. You are not called to just do it the way that everybody else does it. You're called to do it very specifically. But you are also not going to do it alone. Your Christian suffering is to be met and experienced with Christ in the midst of that suffering. That is powerful promise. In fact, we were to be conformed to his death that we might know him and the power of his resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that you will find in the midst of your Christian suffering to bring you through it to fellowship with God in the midst of it, and to inherit the promise and the blessing on the other side of it. This is a trust and a faith and a dependency on God that can only be termed as, or that can only be entered into by the weakness and the humiliation and the destruction and death that comes through persecution. We have got, I want, I want us to really embrace the idea that suffering the slight from your brothers and sisters, suffering the insult, the uh, lack of manners, these things that could be termed petty in all things, all, all real practical considerations, we have got to get better at that. We live in such a tight-knit type of community that guess what? Everybody's going to step on each other's toes. <laughs> That is going to happen regularly and often, and I'm pretty sure we've all experienced that. I promise you that those type of frustrations, those type of inconveniences, those type of, those type of offenses that are temptations are the groundwork for greater witness of God and Christ and the gospel in the earth. Because 
you have so much liberty to be reconciled with your brothers and sisters through the mercies of Christ, you both mutually agreeing that, that God has actually forgiven you, and therefore you must be commanded to forgive one another and be reconciled. You have so much opportunity for that, um, that blessing, that you won't necessarily find in the world. And that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. We're headed to disciple the nations, to teach them the ways of forgiveness, to teach them the ways of mercy, to teach them the ways of Christ's kingdom and his gospel. Suffering well has to be a normal tool in your belt. So die your deaths today and suffer well, for it is the seedbed of future moves of God. And his power will meet you. Praise God. Uh, let's go to second, actually, verses 20 and 21. What does that say? Oh, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we, are e- we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. The same power that causes Christ to be King of kings and Lord of lords is the same power that's in work, at work in us to conform us to him and his image and the pattern of suffering and glory that he has in himself. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death, For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Constantly being delivered over to death. Daily deaths. (laughs) Rejoice. Count it all joy, brethren. God is not going to leave you without getting some daily deaths in (laughs) this week. It's going to happen. Enjoy. (laughs) Rejoice, in fact. (laughs) Thanks, Morgan. (laughs) It's promised. It's coming. And it will work. It's perfect. God's perfect will in you. Constantly being delivered over. So that the life of Jesus, that resurrected life, that as Hebrews 7.16 calls it, the power of an indestructible life, Paul is saying you can suffer beatings, persecutions, uh, perplexings, which are kind of bewilderments and confusions, uh, and not be destroyed. You'll overcome all of it because the life of God in you is the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. You can't be destroyed. Do not fear man who can only kill the body because your soul is, is, escapes that destruction. An incorruptible, indestructible life 
and power thereof, the resurrection power and life of Christ, is ours by the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith, in the midst of suffering. And in that place of suffering, we fellowship with him, and he shares that life with us, and he endures it with us, and he knows. We know him, and he knows us in the fellowship of his sufferings. That is such a sweet, sweet promise. There's nothing you'll encounter that Christ will not walk right through with you. And that's how we overcome the world. That's how we defeat it. There's, that's how the church defeated Rome. There was no power or no torture, no abuse in their arsenal. And they were masters at it. That the church did not endure and did not overcome. I remember reading Eusebius's uh, ecclesiastical history and going, reading about the time of um, the persecution of the church. The horrific things they endured at the hands of the Romans left certain Christians, he names them even, because they became legendary, left them completely maimed, completely decimated, yet they were alive. God had given them supernatural preservation of life to endure it. And obviously, you know, you, you want to believe that because that's what the Bible promises. That's what Christ promises us. It's hard to imagine, but it was supernatural preservation to endure the most brutal of all physical afflictions they could that Rome could possibly crush Christians with. Eventually, the uh, uh, torturers had to give up. They, were, they ran out of energy. Literally. They couldn't keep going. They couldn't keep tormenting certain Christians because, you know, it's like, like why they put a, a John on Patmos. They boiled him in oil and he wouldn't die. <laughs> it's like, we can't kill this guy. We're going to just have to put him elsewhere. We're going to have to take a break because this, this is too exhausting. We've got other people to go kill. Literally, that's... that's the power of an indestructible life, not just in the physical, but certainly in the soul, but it even manifests in signs, wonders, and miracles in the physical. God will even break through in the midst of that. And be encouraged. There's nothing you can't endure in Christ. Even Polycarp, I'm pretty sure they uh, tried to kill him a few times, but on, at the end of his life, they had him on, uh, in, I don't know if it's the Colosseum or whatever, but I have this picture in my mind of what I remember reading. They had him tied to a post. They were lighting him on fire. He wouldn't burn. He wouldn't die. Voice from heaven comes out and says, play the man, Polycarp. <laughs> you know, I think that's right. Is that Catherine? Is that, that's the way the story goes. Oh, okay. Um, it's this legend of Polycarp and his death. And he wouldn't die. And so they, um, I can't remember if they had to stab him with swords. They had, to, they had to kill him with swords or they put lions on him and then did swords and then burned his bones because they, they finally got him dead. <laughs> but he endured all this other stuff in the process and witnessed to Rome, to this entire mass gathering that was witnessing his persecution and his death, that God is greater than Rome. God is bigger than all of the powers and the evil that can be inflicted on man. That's so cool. <laughs> now, I don't necessarily look forward to all those things, but we can endure them in hope, and we can suffer well, and our daily deaths are groundwork for being able to witness more powerfully to the nations in 
this generation and future generations and so forth. Our, one of our major downsides is being 21st century Americans. We are at a height of um, medical science and technology that anytime my muscle aches, I go take an ibuprofen. Every time that um, I stub my toe, I've got a Tylenol for that. Anytime I get a fever, I've got a fever reducer. I don't have to endure it. I am wimpy compared to all other times and places that have endured suffering without a bunch of medications available at me instantly. There are, I have a mental block on pain and I don't want to experience it. I do everything in my power to run from it. I believe we all know that as 21st century Americans. But God calls us to suffer things. God calls us to experience pain. And what I also didn't realize until Tim Keller's book was that in the Christian understanding and handling of pain and suffering, God allows us to cry out in our suffering. And it's legal. It's okay to cry out. It's not okay to condemn God and curse God, and that's not good. But crying out, Eli, Eli, Lamas the Bakhtanai. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ knows the place of suffering and crying out. Job was the big example in the Old Testament before Christ of suffering and crying out to God, demanding justice. God, why is this happening? And, you know, when I read through Job, I'm just like, geez, I don't know if I would, I mean, I would be pretty distraught, but I don't know if I'd quite go as bold as Job did on some points, you know. He was pretty bold in the way he cried out to God. Now, he repeated it a lot at the end of the chapters, and no way he sinned. He didn't sin in this. He cried out from his anguish, and he didn't sin. What Tim Keller helped me understand was most other, I think he almost, I think he said all, like Christianity is unique in this regard, that suffering is to not be avoided, not to be downplayed, not to be, um, you know, uh, what is the word, uh, escaped through mantras and uh, spiritual exercise and so forth. It's not to be avoided. It's to be experienced, to literally go through it. Go through that fire. That's the call and the example of Christianity. And you are allowed to cry out in the midst of it to a God who saves, who walks with you through the midst of the fire, who fellowships with you in the suffering. Would that we would suffer better for the name of Christ. Would that I would do it. I'm the biggest wimp and whiner and complainer on the planet. I really am. Like this is, I preach this literally to myself. I've been having to preach it to my wife who's been suffering from pains and stuff that nobody understands why. <laughs> it's not arthritis. <laughs> I figured that out. <laughs> nobody knows why. <laughs> she just has these pains and she'll cry out because they're so painful. And it's like, honey, I don't know what to do for you, but I'm right here. And she is to, her, to the glory of God. She has found a place of... Um, going to the feet of Christ and fellowshipping with him in the midst of it. And he has met her powerfully over the last few weeks. It's really cool. And that is glory to God because it's promise made, promise kept. No matter what gets dished out to you in the sovereign will of God, whether it's pain or suffering, although 
Yeah, no matter what it is, Christ will meet you in it. And maybe in the presence, in the fellowshipping, he will deliver you of it. He will heal you. He will miraculously relieve you of it. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll just camp out with you in the midst of it. Either way is okay. Either way is good. Either way produces an eternal weight of glory that these momentary light afflictions cannot begin to compare to. So die your deaths today and every day. Suffer well, but find Christ in the suffering. When you're slighted, when people are rising up against you or when it feels like everybody's misunderstanding you, go to the Lord. Find him in the midst of it. There will be a fresh, fresh presence for such things. Suffering is supposed to drive us to Christ. Every cross you bear, there is a promise of resurrection on the other side. There is no cross, no death that you're called to that resurrection and power, a powerful resurrection, life indestructible, is not on the other side of it. These are weighty thoughts, but every Christian has got to grapple with this. Every Christian has got to know how to deal with the problem of pain, inconvenience, suffering, persecution, potential death, everything. We are not to fear, but rather rejoice. Count it all joy, brethren when your faith is tested in all of these ways. Cry out to God, he will meet you. That's really all I have. You know, good old encouraging sermon. But again, for the practical application for our community, I really feel strongly that if we're going to answer the call that we've heard to fasting and prayer and to go deeper into the heart of God, that we have to be willing to endure a lot more of each other's messes in the process. Fasting has a wonderful way of bringing out things that are deep in your spirit that need to be cleansed. In the Mahesh Shabda book, it, uh, Hidden Power of Prayer and Fasting, um, he uses the word uh, spiritual toxins that need to be purged from your spirit. And God will bring them to the surface in a fast. And it might get on somebody else in the process. But you claim the blood, you, wash, uh, you get washed, you get cleansed of it, and it's removed. The reason he brings it to the surface is because he's purging you of it. And we have to recognize and have grace for one another that if we're going to pursue God for that power dimension, for, that, uh, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for the stuff that we have yet to see that we know are promised, we're going to have to get purged of a lot of things in the process. And we're going to have to be willing to wash each other's feet Cleanse each other's sins in the name of Jesus by the blood of the Lamb. Wash one another with the word. Endure suffering. Endure offenses. Endure this, that, and the other. And to find grace for one another. Just to find grace for one another. To, to love them enough in the process of them becoming purer, holier vessels for the Lord. And we would find ourselves with a greater capacity once we're purged from these toxins for that fresh outpouring. Our wineskin would be broadened, would be deepened, would be more open and available for more of God when he does move, when he does pour himself out. And when that faucet turns on, it doesn't turn off for a time. And it's more than anyone of us can actually hold. We will all be overflowing in that sort of a, uh, 
in, a, in that sort of a, uh, an outpouring. It, he turns the faucet on and it stays on and everybody's filled, everybody's overflowing and everybody is just washed out. But the amount or capacity for receiving and retaining that outpouring comes down to preparation. It comes down to humbling ourselves, fasting and praying, confessing our sins, cleansing our hearts, readying ourselves for that move of God and being purged of all of our besetting sins, spiritual toxins, if you will, all the things that are just lingering. And we should be expectant of that and we should be preparing for it because I do believe that's what we've been hearing in the spirit pretty clearly in the leadership meetings and stuff. That's what we're actually fasting and praying and moving towards is an outpouring of God. That's what we're asking for because there are things we can't do apart from the power and the, of the spirit of God in our midst. I don't open blind eyes, but I'm told to. These works you will do and greater works also. I'm told to do it, but I don't. I can't. God can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If we meet him and we know the fellowship, we know that place of intimacy, we'll be prepared to obey in all manners, in all respects, together in that time. So let us examine ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves today as we come before the Lord and we receive his body and his blood. Let us be thankful that it's first off offered and second off that it's effectual. That his grace and his power is in the meeting, is in the word, is in the table, is in the worship. That he is pleased to dwell among us. And let's take great joy in that and after today, go forth and die your deaths and suffer well. <laughs> in Jesus' name. Lord, have mercy on us. Teach us to grapple with these things and to come to terms with them through your word and in the secret place and in walking in the light with one another, being willing to extend grace to one another as we all have our moments of fleshliness what we are accomplishing and pursuing in this covenant community is a very biblical pattern. And the accuser of the brethren is roaming around like a lion, seeking whom he can devour and destroy. God, silence the accuser of the brethren in this place, in our community. May we, not be, temp may we be able to withstand any temptation to accuse one another and to humble ourselves, and if so necessary, endure misunderstandings, endure offenses, endure whatever it is that comes up in the power of your resurrection. Teach us to hug our crosses, God, knowing that it produces an eternal weight of glory that you are totally worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen.